You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Pride is the root in the Christian tradition for 1,900 years it was understood that pride is the root of all sins, of all vices. Now, vices are different from sins because vices are the things inside of us, the sin that grows into habit. So say this with me, vices are sins that grow into habit. This is far different than just sinning. This isn't a behavioral thing, this is an habitual thing. And as a result of that, it begins to form us from the inside out. So that the vice of wrath, wanting to see others get hurt um, because of our anger, that is an habitual posture. Uh, it's a disordered, it's the result of a disordered love or disordered loves. It's an order, it's a result of disordered hearts, all right? That's where this comes from. And so Yahweh, who must have known this was going to be a struggle, when he established his community of people, he gave them the word that we read during our time uh, practicing the presence. He said in Deuteronomy 8, verse 17, You may say to yourself, my power and my own ability have gained this wealth for me. But remember that the Lord your God gives you the power to gain wealth in order to confirm his covenant he swore to your fathers as it is today. Yahweh is first, above all things, teaching his people what it means to be a society and to live with him as king. And he knows that at some point, his people will fall into this thing called pride. And pride isn't just this arrogance, um, this boasting, pompous kind of thing that we often think it is. Pride is actually much more subtle and sneakier than that. Pride is about self-sufficiency. It's about self-reliance. Pride is about this sense of autonomy and individualism that leads us to thinking that we are enough. And so Yahweh seems to think that there's going to come a point in time where they start believing that they are the reason they have what they have. You know, we do it all the time. I worked hard. I worked hard. I went to school. I got the degrees. I bought this. I bought that. I saved up for this. And we forget. When that eye takes root, that eye turns into things like envy. It turns into things like greed. These are the seven capital vices. It turns into things like, like lust. It turns into things like, like wrath. Like, I will hurt you if you try to mess with this thing. It's a vice. It's in there. And you're going to need your worship guides today. It's a vice. And, it, and it's because that pride settles into where we somehow think that we are responsible for everything we have. We forget that we were born on third base, but we think we hit triples to get there. And we think that all of a sudden that everything we have is because of what we have done. And our society fosters that narrative. And we are formed by it unknowingly. So Yahweh then restates this in a lot of different ways. And we won't have time to go through all this, but I want to read pretty fast. If you'll look here at the screen, the wisdom literature. Proverbs 8.13, I hate pride and arrogance, corruption and perverse speech. Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, disgrace follows, but with humility comes wisdom. Proverbs 14.12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death or to death. Proverbs 16.18, pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. Psalm 20, verse 7, some take pride in chariots. Now, I want you to listen. This is a, this is a militarism text. Some take pride in chariots and others in horses. That's a military language. But we take pride in the name of Yahweh, our God. 
And it's not even that. The wisdom literature can go on and on, but the prophets even got involved in this conversation. But Isaiah 2, verse 11, Human pride will be humbled, and the loftiness of men will be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted on that day. Isaiah 13, 11, I'll bring disaster on the world and their own iniquity on the wicked. I will put an end to the pride of the arrogant and humiliate the insolence of tyrants. Jeremiah 13, 17. But if you will not listen, listen to this. Listen to this. this is Yahweh speaking through, through Jeremiah. Not only does pride irritate God's life because it takes glory from Him, and more importantly, I think, to God than it even taking glory for Him, it wrecks us by giving ourselves the glory. Look at what it does to the heart of God. But if you will not listen, my innermost being will weep in secret because of your, say it with me, pride. My eyes will overflow with tears for the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Yahweh's heart breaks over this thing when we fall into this notion that we are enough. That somehow everything I have is all on me. Yahweh isn't just angry, his heart breaks because it's going to break us. Amos 6, verse 8, The Lord God has sworn by Himself, this is the declaration of Yahweh, the God of hosts, I loathe Jacob's pride and hate his citadels. This is a country taking its pleasure and its pride and militarism. And He says, I hate his citadels, so I will hand over the city and everything in it. Yahweh wanted His people to never forget that they were totally dependent upon Him. See, pride is about God refusal. But not in the way we think. Like I said earlier, it's not limited to boastful or pompous activity. It's not the, the jerk in the office who thinks he's how he has arrived. It's not that. It's more subtle than that. Pride is when we quietly make decisions in life that slowly replace the center of life with ourselves rather than God. I want to say that again. Pride is when we quietly make decisions in life that slowly replace the center of life with ourselves rather than God. We take control of self-defined and or self-achieved happiness. In this way, pride it becomes about self-absorption. And self-absorption leads to self-sufficiency. And self-sufficiency leads to self-reliance. And self-reliance leads to self-indulgence. I call this the cycle of pride because we begin to think that all of life is about me and my accomplishments. And you hear it in our country all the time with my, my rights, my entitlement. Our favorite pronoun is the word my my, my, my. And, and you hear that, and that becomes about self-absorption. All of a sudden, leads to then this sense of self-sufficiency that I've got everything I need to get it done. And that in my self-sufficiency, it leads to self-reliance. It says, I'm the only one who can do it for me. And then self-reliance leads to self-indulgence, which essentially means I can do whatever I want to do because I am ultimately in charge of me. It is my life. It is my family. You can't tell me how to live with my family. That's what we do. That's pride. And it creates a cycle that eats us up. And this leads to disordered loves. We begin loving the wrong things too much, or loving the right things too little, or just loving the wrong things at all. And this pride becomes the root of these vices. So if you want to look at your worship guide for a minute, because I want to teach more than I want to just preach. 
page 10. See, this is dangerous, man. This is, this is seriously dangerous because it's subtle. It's all over our language. And if we don't think we're formed by language, then we don't understand how humans are formed. Language forms systems, and systems form people. Language becomes one of the pillars of how systems work in our society, whether it's family systems or social systems. See, pride is different from vainglory. If you look at here, page 10, vainglory is this idea that I am super duper important, that, I, that, that the most important person in the world is me, but it's not just, that is pride, but where vainglory comes in is when we seek attention when we seek glory with empty accomplishments, it's when we just want to be seen as important, but we've done nothing to be important. It's the person that wants to step over everybody else so they can be in charge and be seen as in charge. And we're going we're to talk about this in detail, so we're not going to go into it any further. And then if you look at envy, I, I kind of went out of order. Um, where is envy? Envy, page nine. If you look at envy, envy is this sort of state of heart that brings uh, personal sadness when another person is happy. Envy is when I want to see the other person do, do worse than I. Envy is when I want to be better than everybody else. This is about winning and losing. Envy is about wanting to see the other person not succeed simply because I don't want them to succeed because I want to be the one to succeed. Or I don't want to be lesser than them. I want to be better than others. That's envy. And envy is a, a, a vice that, and we'll look at this, like I say, we'll look at this in a couple of weeks. Um, one of the vices that God hates. Envy is what leads us to compare ourselves with other people. Envy is that habitual state of heart that leads us to compare. It's dangerous. Wrath is a different kind of danger. Wrath is anger without any kind of control. The Bible says, be angry and do not sin. That's what, that's what Paul said in Ephesians. Wrath is about wanting to see another person harmed. We live in a wrathful country. We live in an envious world. We live in a vainglory society where we are willing to see anyone else hurt if they threaten anything that I want for me. And that is a vice. Slothfulness, or acedia, is another word for it. Slothfulness is about resisting the demands of love. Slothfulness is not about just being lazy. It's about, it's about not being willing to live into the responsibility of loving another. Because I don't want to. This is how pride works into that. I love me more than anyone else. Therefore, I will do what I want to do, even if it's at your expense. I may have said that I love you as my neighbor, as I love you as I love myself, but I really love myself a lot more than I love you, right? Like that's where slothfulness kicks in. Lust. Lust is an inordinate desire for pleasure and enjoyment. And it doesn't have to be limited to sexuality. It can be anything that's inordinate, this unhealthy, unchecked desire for pleasure. It's like an form of hedonism where 
where all I want is just self-gratification. Gluttony, which lust and gluttony can sometimes go together. Gluttony, gluttony is this idea that I am going to just do whatever I want to do. So lust gives me that desire, that inordinate desire for pleasure. Then gluttony turns into this sense of self-indulgence. Well, again, we're going to talk about each one of these. And here's what we're going to do over the series. I'm going to give us practices, spiritual practices to work against these in our lives. Because you're going to go through this and you're going to say, dude, that like I really struggle with that. I think that is my vice. Every single one of us, without fail, have a vice. How we're living into it is beyond me. My prayer is the Spirit will reveal that and then we'll take the practice and then redirect that and let the virtue overtake the vice. I'll share where mine are too as we move through this. Because I discovered a couple of years ago when I first started studying this where my vices were, and it was quite shocking. I did not think my vice was what it was. Then there's greed, or you know, you might know it as covetousness. It's an excessive love or excessive desire for possessions, for money, for stuff. See, the writer of the gospel. They knew that this was an issue for us. And even John, the beloved disciple, knew this would be an issue. So John once said in a letter he wrote, 1 John 2.16, he said, For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride, of one's, the pride in one's lifestyle, read this with me, is not from the Father, but is from the world. I'm going to read it again. For everything that belongs to this world, this age, okay, it doesn't mean this literal globe, it means this age, the reign of sin and death. When you see the word world, it doesn't mean people. It means the reign of sin and death or the time of darkness or the kingdom of darkness. He says, everything that belongs to the reign of sin and death, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's lifestyle. Now think about that contextually, living in this country, living in this state, living in this city, living at this time. Let's talk about this like people who, are, who have boots on the ground with addresses, right? Let's not be abstract, let's be concrete. That's how we have to work this out because we have to work it out in life. The pride in one's lifestyle is not from the Father, but is from the reign of sin and death, from the world. That isn't of God. I cannot, cannot, cannot take that in and be faithful. Here's what Jesus would say. Jesus in John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vineyard keeper. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit he removes, he prunes every branch that produces fruit so it'll produce more fruit. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. He's talking to his disciples there. He's trying to say, you guys are, are producing some fruit here. Remain in me and I in you, just as the branch, listen to this please, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. The only way we're going to produce any virtue in our life is by abiding in Jesus. That has to look like something. Here's what I'm going to suggest. The practices that we give over the next several weeks are going to be a means by which we can abide in Christ. The practices. I am the vine and you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you remain in me, read this with me, please. And my words remain in you. 
Ask whatever you want and it'll be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. So now do you think that I've been talking about how we'll know them by their fruits? Like I've, I've preached that a couple of times. I've, I've offered that to us because Jesus is saying, there's a proof to my disciple. The proof is the one who's bearing fruit that's worth eating. But if the fruit that I'm bearing is the fruit of pride, that then reduces itself in the form of envy, like an orange, or the apple is greed, or the watermelon is, 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 is gluttony. If I'm producing fruit from the tree of my life that is reflective of the root of pride, then I need to redirect my life. I just need to redirect. I need to reorganize. I need to rethink. You have the Spirit of God in you. You can do that. But what I fear sometimes is that our society wires us for pride. We're wired for self-sufficiency. We're wired for self-reliance. This is Jesus' declaration of dependence. In a society that is built around a declaration of independence, where we have our own little mini declarations of independence, where we say, I am independent of all others. I can do what's right for me. I can pursue happiness. I can pursue a good life. I can pursue what I want in my life for me. And then this is Jesus saying, give me that declaration for this one. You are dependent upon me. You can't do it by yourself. You need me. And here's the thing about God is, like, He knows you. He knows exactly how you can bear fruit. He made you for you. Like John, when John was made, John got a musical gift. John got a particular posture of passion, of, of, of warmth, of kindness, of goodness that allows him to be present with people. Then God made me. And I didn't have the same things. I have, I have different things. I have My passion comes out with the sort of this demonstrative, I've drank too much coffee this morning kind of thing. We're all wired differently. And God knows exactly what works within our own wirings. But when we plug in to pride, when we plug in to this declaring a sense of independence from all other people in our lives, we will produce the fruit of pride. And it will be our downfall. As people, and as a church, and even as a country, as a world. Those things are not from God. But when we are formed more by this declaration of dependence that Jesus gives us, we will slowly begin to reorganize our lives around God rather than ourselves. And we'll escape, we'll escape the cycle of pride. See, one of the things we don't often realize is when we fall into this place of pride, we begin to focus so much on ourselves that we can't focus on others. All we can do is see the other as a threat to myself. If you threaten my self-sufficiency, self-reliance, or the way I want to live for me, then you have entered the category of threat in my life. And then I need to make sure that you are not living up to me. You aren't near me, that you aren't a part of me, and that I am ultimately better than you. That's the worst end. Which is probably why Jesus then taught this in Luke chapter 18. 
Verse 9, he told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple complex to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. One was a political religious leader and one was a treasonous tax collector. The Pharisee took a stand and was praying like this, God, I thank you that I am not like other people greedy, unrighteous, or unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I go to church and read my Bible and pray. I give a tenth. I'm generous. I give lots of money away. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, turn your wrath from me, a lawbreaker. Jesus says, I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other. Because everyone who exalts himself, everyone who thinks more highly of himself than he ought, everyone who puts their their security and their own accomplishments. That one is the one that will be humbled because they'll realize that they're building their lives on shifting sands. They're not building their lives with the right foundation. They have planted their lives into terrible, terrible ground incapable of yielding the fruit that God longs for you and I to have. And he later on he says, but the one who humbles himself, the one who sees that what she has and that what she needs cannot come merely from her own accomplishment. She cannot pull herself up by her own bootstraps. She does not have a right to pursue happiness on her own terms. He does not have a right to pursue liberty on his own terms. He does not have that right from God. Not that one. Not on his own terms. That one. That one. The one who gets that is the one who God can lift up. See, here's the thing. The gospel of grace frees us from any claim of self-sufficiency. That's what the gospel does. The gospel in its very simplest form with God on a cross very clearly demonstrates that we don't have what it takes to make it all right again. We can right certain wrongs, but we can't rectify them. It's a lie. No matter how seductively it draws us in, no matter what the talking heads try to say, it's a lie. It's a lie of Babylon. It's not a truth of the kingdom. And the sooner God's people would get that, the sooner the world would look different. And some of us are so immersed in this that we can't see it. And so then God gives us the cross so that we can see it. I mean, in the end, what can you and I really control? 
I mean, what claim of self-sufficiency do we have? The reality is we can only control what we hold on to, but only to a point. So Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, a fourth century Roman African church leader said, God gives where he finds empty hands. Some of us are wondering when God is going to bear fruit in our lives, and what we don't realize is we've held on to the wrong things. We're holding on to a personal declaration of independence. We're holding on to self-sufficiency or self-reliance. Some of us are holding on to a love of the wrong things or loving the right things too much. Some of us love our families too much, and they become idols, and we don't see that. Some of us love our country too much, and it's become an idol, and we don't see that. Some of us love our justice, our pursuit of justice too much, at the risk of, of anyone who gets in our way, and we don't see that. Some of us love too little. Some of us don't love our family enough because we love ourselves more than we love those we're supposed to love. Some of us don't even care about loving our enemies. The point is, is we're holding on to the wrong things, but God gives to those who have empty hands. How do you and I let go? Well, the application this morning is really easy. We see the cross. We start there. What we do from there is called life. But we see the cross. We see grace. We see that God is doing for us what we're incapable of doing for ourselves. It's like James said. James 4 had Christians, obviously they were wondering. He said, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Why can't you guys just get along? Don't they come from the cravings that are at war? Where? Within you. You desire and do not have. You want too much. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war. You do not have because you do not ask. You, you're not asking. You're trying to get it on your own. Trying to make it happen. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your evil desires, adulteresses. If you ever think I'm blunt, read this. Don't you know that friendship with the reign of sin and death is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the world's friend, if you want to be good friends with Babylon, then you become God's enemy. Or do you think it's without reason the Scripture says that the Spirit who lives in us yearns jealousy? God is pressing at you. The fire that's burning in your soul is the Spirit of God saying, come back to me. Know that you can't do this on your own. And so he says, but he gives greater grace. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, but resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, double-minded people. In other words, see the cross for what it is, Fred. You've got to see the cross for what it is that it's about God doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves, that you're not going to find joy and peace and life and hope in a better spouse or a better boyfriend or girlfriend or in a better job or in better accomplishments or in a better nation or in a better city or with better clothes or in a better house. You're not going to find what you need to fill your heart by tending your whole life around these things. You're not going to be able to give enough money away to fill the hole in your heart. You're not going to be able to make enough money to fill the hole in your heart. You've got to see, first and foremost, what God is doing on the cross. Grace frees us. You can let it go. And you don't have to figure out what to do next. 
Just trust God with the consequences. He's got this. What you and I have to tend to is resisting the devil, resisting the need to come back again, especially when he gets a little scary. Because when you let go, what are we holding on to? Well, it may feel like you're holding on to nothing, but you're really holding on to Christ. Pride will destroy our lives, but grace gives us life. Grace. So here's the thing. In the cross, as God's own declaration of the world's dependence upon Him, He invites us to a life of self-giving love over self-serving giving. He invites us to take hold of a life that relies upon a sufficiency over our own self-sufficiency. He invites us to take hold of life with a sacrificial posture of self-giving love over self-indulgence. The work of God's grace is to make us more gracious while the truth of God's grace keeps us humble. We have to be willing to let go. And here's the thing, church. If you're looking for an application, if you're the kind of person that's looking for, what do I do next? What do I do next, Fred? Every week. Why do you think we celebrate this every week? Seriously, why do we do this every week? If you go through this practice slowly and you stand in line behind a person that you wouldn't have chosen to be with were it not for Christ, and you see that for what it is, that you've gathered here instead of slept in, right? Like you've made a choice to come here, to line up here beside people you wouldn't choose here, to come to the table here, and that you only have to come with open hands. And when you come with open hands, your, your family that you're holding on to tightly, or your, your job, or your country, or your other faulty allegiances that you're holding on to tightly, you just, all you got to do, all you got to do is just let go like this and take the bread. Just take the bread. Take the body of Christ and see it as that. This is Christ for you. And then you, and you take the cup. See, the good news is you got to have both hands. You can't hold on to what you came with. You got to let it go to grab this. And then you walk back with the person that you wouldn't have chose to hung out with because you're both holding on to the same thing. It's grace. I'm not worthy of this table. I can have more degrees than a thermometer and be unworthy for the table. It's grace. There's nothing I've accomplished. Somebody asked me why I'm getting my doctorate. Well, it's not because I'm getting like a pay raise when I get my doctorate, right? Like, it's not like we don't get baptism quotas in our church or anything like that. Like, there's no reason. That... I just... I like to learn because I want to know more, but it accomplishes me, accomplishes me, profession, accomplishes nothing. It's nothing. I know no more than you. Because the supreme knowledge of all knowledge is the gospel of grace. All starts there. You're holding on to something today. I know you are. I am. Some of us are holding on to our families way too tightly. We don't trust them with God. 
Some of us are holding on to our dreams and desires of job and vocation way too tightly that it's giving way too much room in my heart to disturb me. Some of us are holding on to this country way too tightly. And it has racked us with fear. Some of us are holding on to our status way too tightly that all we do is compare. All I'm inviting you to do is to take hold of Jesus instead. It starts here. And then the rest of your life is lived learning how to hold on to the cross. So all who want to come, the table is prepared for you. The cornerstone of the church the cornerstone of earth, the cornerstone of the world, the cornerstone of our life, the cornerstone called Jesus the Christ invites you to the table.